Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and robotic and embedded systems. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. It's the real one this time, though. Yes. The real Stephen Craig. This is episode 392. So our guest this week is Matthew Prater. Matt has been teaching robotics and embedded systems at the University of Advanced Technology since 2019. Before that, he worked in the pharmaceutical industry for 15 years, mostly for Cardinal Health. While at Cardinal, he made radio pharmaceuticals and worked as the quality unit in production for seven years before switching to R&D as the senior principal scientist. And, man, this must be years ago at this point. The previous episode Matt was on was episode 193, Robots Have Fall Damage. So, Matt... Welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be here. We, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see we, we all survived COVID and made it through it. It was crazy. That's a crazy couple of years. Not only made it like living, but also still have electrical components. I've got a couple of Raspberry Pis hanging around here. <laughs> they're, 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 they're probably, probably worth a couple thousand by now. But <laughs> Well, we, we all made it. <laughs> yes. So I'm here at UAT. I'm in our in our engineering lab, and I'm ready to talk about fun with uh, with radioactive materials. Matt actually came to our May the Fab be with you back in May this year, and this is right around the time that Stephen started his new job with basically selecting space component components that go into space for electronics. Is that a good accurate description, Stephen? That is one of the things that I do on a daily basis. Oh, I guess there's more then. <laughs> But that spurred Matt to ask, because Matt's done, I won't say similar, but at least knows way more about radiation than at least I do. And so we're uh, going to talk too. more about that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's, that's what kind of got me started. When they first designed, okay, so, so I made radio pharmaceuticals. So basically what I did were positron emission. So it was all uh, 511 keV kill electron volt uh, photon radiation, meaning gamma radiation. And when we first started back in 2000, the, the drugs first came on the market became approved in 2000. And when they first came on the market, we planned our, our business. I started working for a small company, and he planned on selling like five doses a day. And that was going to be enough to have the company survive and thrive. And it doesn't take that much radiation to do five doses. So the way they had the box designed, you know, because it's radioactive, I can't actually go in and physically add the chemicals together. Instead, what we have to use electrical components, switches and valves and solenoids and things like that. And what they had done is they had put all the computer hardware on the back of the box. So it was in the, we call it a hot cell. It's an enclosure behind five inches or six inches of lead plate chevrons to uh, protect it from people. and um, Or to protect people from it. Yes, yeah, to protect people from it. <laughs> exactly. I guess, I guess you're probably right thinking that way. So anyway, when we first started, you know, we, we were thinking it was five doses. It was one run a day. It wasn't going to be that much radiation because we only need to do five doses. So it wasn't a big deal. Well, all of a sudden... More players came in the market, and we couldn't be a quality anymore. We had to become a quantity, meaning we had to, by the time I was out of production, we were doing about 120 doses a day instead of five. So because of that, we had to up our throughput. We had to make a lot more activity 
at the starting point and at the finish point. And because we had to increase our activity, and I'm talking an increase of maybe 100 to 1,000 to 10,000 times what, what we originally had, because you're, you're increasing your activity, you're starting to cause failures on the back of the box. We had, uh, well, were they, they were PLCs. We had PLCs on, on the back of the box, and specific PLCs would fail. So one of the jobs that they wanted me to do is to, it was kind of a, like a little side job, was see if I could use some, some radiation-hardened components. Now, really, that's, that's not the way to attack it. The way to attack it is move the computer out of the box and then use wires <laughs> instead. But, you know, and I tried to tell them that, but they wanted to keep it stock. So I'm like, hey, I'll, I'll go take a look. And, and when I asked around, this is back like 2004, 2005, they were telling me that the technology at the time, the, the radiation-hardened stuff, was 10 to 15 years behind the current technology. And it was whatever, like 50 to 100 to 150 times the cost of non-radiation-hardened. Does that sound about right now, Stephen? That's exactly right. You know, you go try to find something that's radiation-hardened, and uh, the options are incredibly limited. The options are, in a lot of times, ancient, and you're kind of stuck to, here's your your comparator. And I mean the one comparator that you can get. <laughs> or here's your one LDO that you can get. And it's been around for a while, and they're $700 a piece with no <laughs> quantity breaks. And there you go. <laughs> yes. At, at least you don't get choice paralysis. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you don't get to pick your size. You don't get to pick your color. All, all you have is one. Your choice is one or none. Yep. Absolutely. So, yeah, that was kind of a, it was fun that way, the way we made up. So, I guess. So, what was ended up being the solution? Well, the solution was to buy replacement components and just just keep it going. Keep that train <laughs> moving. Just keep replacing them as they burn out? Yeah. I guess that 150X yeah. cost you could replace that unit 150 times. Yes, before. absolutely. <laughs> well, but what you said earlier about moving the electronics away, that's a solution that is just, I shouldn't say just, but that's a solution that involves cabling and harnesses mm -hmm. and the cost of that. I, I, and you already touched on it. I mean, that seems like the best possible situation. Yes. I mean, and, and that's the deal. I mean, you, you guys in space, you, you don't have that choice. I mean, you do kind of because cause you can set up links and down links and stuff like that. But for me, you know, moving it out, outside the box is good. The problem is we're making an FDA regulated product that's been approved. If we want to change the, um, the synthesis unit, then we have to go through um, FDA approval process for the new unit, which means it has to be an approved medical device. They call it a medical device. Uh, I forgot what, what part it was. So it's just not even the component increase. It's the uh, recertification. Recertification yes. costs as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that was if we kept it inside the box and just changed the component, we, we would only have to test that component. But when we move it, all the computer controls are out of the box then we would have to retest that everything. So it makes it makes it more more difficult. And the deal was, and in fact, I, I talked to my buddy who's still working there, and he was telling me they're they're still using the same synthesis unit. It's been it's been twenty years. So hmm. I'm curious, what were the failure modes you were seeing uh, out of this? Were were components just full on dying, or were they degrading slowly? 
Well, what would happen is, and what, what was funny is it must have been the way it was set up. So the way this guy's programmed, it's programmed through Excel sheet. You actually do an Excel sheet and you set it up in the Excel sheet and then it has a compiler, like a backend compiler that compiles it to 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 the code to be able to run on the PLCs. And there were specific valves. What the that, way, Okay, hold on, hold on. That, that's like the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what's even better is, is this was done in 1999 or 1998 by a, um, he's either, I think it was Belgium, by like a Belgium physics guy. And he wanted to make this drug and he knew that approval was coming. So he said, hey, I'm going to do the synthesis unit. I'll grab some PLCs. I'll use my uh, I'll use my, my Excel skills and uh, program this guy up using an Excel front end and then a you know a compiler back end and then everyone started using it. It was like it took off world around. Uh, I actually it was uh, I forgot the name of the place, but yeah, it was a Belgium company that did it. And then we did have an American company that that had a competing product down in uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, called CTI. And then CTI had a different synthesis unit. And their synthesis unit was really cool because it had, I called it the, the wouldn't it be cool synthesis machine. Because what they did, I, I knew the chemist that worked on it, Steve Ziegler, and we were actually the first company outside of CTI to have a machine, of one of these machines called the Quadrex. And it had a bunch of cool stuff. It had a temp- an IR temperature sensor to flash on the reaction cell, so you could always tell what, what the temperature was inside the cell. It had dual zone cooling and heating with hot air, so it was like a like a pneumatic cooling and heating. You could heat the bottom and cool the top to set a nice reflux going. You could use a temperature sensor and take it to dryness. So what what happens is our target, okay, so, so let's scroll back a little bit and then we'll, we'll get going on it. So the way this works is we make our own radioactive isotope, okay? And the isotope we, we use for the most part is F18, fluorine 18. It's got an atomic ma- or a mass of, of 18 and it's fluorine and it's, oh man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a mistake, carbon. Yeah, so it's got nine protons and nine neutrons. Um, it should. I, I'm, I'm thinking in my head counting the periodic table. I'm, I do more robotic stuff and less chemistry, so I've forgotten the, the periodic table sometimes. But I think it's nine and nine. And what happens is, or the trick is, we don't start with that because fluorine-18 has a 110.98-minute half-life. So every two hours, half of it dies. So you know, when you have, let's say you have 10 millicuries, millicuries of value of radiation. If you have 10 millicuries in 110.98 minutes, you've got five millicuries. And then in another 110.98 minutes, you got two and a half millicuries. And it does that whole exponential drops by half every half-life. So what, what happens though, is we start with O18, oxygen 18, and we bombard it with a proton beam. And, and then that causes it to go up to fluorine, and it gives off a neutron and becomes F18. And then that, that F18 is contained in a stream of water. You know, it's, it's in O18 water. So you're making the fluorine or the radioactive right fluorine on demand, basically. 
Yes, exactly. And the, the trick is you have to because every two hours, half of it dies. So you can't like make it and sit on a shelf because it's all going to go away by, by the time you do stuff with it. And then what will happen is, is we'll take it and then, you know, the, the cyclotron guy will give it to me and I'll, I'll do my chemistry. I'll make it into something that's useful. The most common product is fluorodeoxyglucose. It's a glucose sugar, okay, with a tracer on it, with, with the F18 on it. And when you, when you inject it in the body, cancer does two things. It eats and it makes babies. When a cell goes cancerous, all it does is eat and make babies. So what happens is, and it really, really likes glucose to, to eat. So any glucose gets sucked up by the cancer, gets sucked up by the cancer in the brain because the brain likes glucose too. So it goes to the brain and the cancer, and then you can put them on a scanner and you look for radiation and they'll tell you where there's radiation. And you can say, yeah, the, the, this guy probably has lung cancer because there's a nodule here and here and here, and you just see him glow on the screen. But the whole trick is we... We start off with a cold product and make it a hot product. And that's in relationship to the, the radiation, yes. cold, not radioactive, and hot yep. radiation. Oh, yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah, yes, exactly. Not a, not temperature, but, but rather hot, radioactive, hot. So, and in fact, just as a side note to get the electrical engineers back involved, <laughs> and we'll get out of chemistry for a second. So we wanted a generator because it was Minnesota. It was wintertime. You can lose power, and and when the then the cyclotron tron, because it uses a proton beam, it needs a vacuum. You can't have a proton beam in air because it doesn't make it. So you have to have a vacuum to do it. When those vacuum pumps turn off, you lose vacuum, and your stuff stops running, and then you got to take an hour to pump it back down to get vacuum again, so you can keep going. So we spent. I think it was like $120,000 for a generator, for a diesel generator that could handle the whole facility. And it was diesel, so we could fill it up and and it could run forever as long as the diesel kept getting refilled. The only problem is I believe the generator took 23 seconds or 17 seconds to spin up. When power's out, it takes so, you know, like, like 17 seconds or 23 seconds to get a good current from it, a good stable voltage and current for it to run. Does does that sound reasonable for, for diesel? That sounds really quick. Yeah, I was about to say, that's fast. <laughs> okay, yeah. So we had to spend another $70,000 on capacitors to bridge that gap so we could get the... Just that 20-second gap? Yeah, So, so and it, it was like another 100000 for that. So we paid a hundred and. 30,000 to go from 23 seconds to forever. And then we paid another 100,000 to go from zero to 23 seconds. Now, that could be wrong. And and, and keep in mind, uh, I, I was a chemist when they were telling me this story. So I could be way off base. I'm not sure. And that, that was purely to just make sure you maintained that vacuum in the event that you lost power. Exactly. Exactly. And we would. You really cared about that vacuum. Yeah. Well, if you lose vacuum, it, it takes you two hours to get running again. And because of this 110 minute half-life, you have to, you know, if you're two hours late, you're losing patience. You can't get it, you know, you, because we had, you know, it takes two hours to run the cyclotron, another hour for synthesis and QC before we can send out the door. So it's like a three hour thing. And 
we had the, the early morning stuff, the, the, the middle of the night stuff were flights. We would have flights that would take off. We had a flight that took off to like Fargo. I think it was like three o'clock in the morning or, or yeah, it was, it was pretty close to three, maybe three thirty in the morning. It would fly to Fargo. Now keep in mind, this is early two thousands. So the flights we would go on, they used to send flights whenever you did a check and it got canceled they would physically send the check back to the bank. So we went on check flights. Flights that had, empty, that had checks on it would, would have our dose on it as well back in the early 2000s. So we, we would do that, except for uh, Seattle. Seattle would fly America Express to Alaska. So they did the Alaska flight through America Express. But everybody else did these check flights. But yeah, it made it interesting. And, and the deal was the timing was so important because if you're – if you're late, you miss a flight, and then you have to get a later flight, and then the doctor's upset because the patients are backing up, and and you don't want to make doctors upset. Doctors don't like to be upset, and they and they tell you that, that they don't enjoy being upset. <laughs> so, so actually, I'm curious, given the fact that you had to synthesize this and then fly it somewhere and deliver it with a half life of two hours, did you try to? overproduce such that by the time it reached its destination, you had enough? Yeah. What what would happen when we send it out, we, we have a, an end of synthesis time, which is when when the drug is the drug, okay? And then we, we would prorate the dose. So like, let's say the, the end of synthesis was at 8 o'clock in the morning and the first injection was 10. We would give them twice the amount of material. So if they needed 10 militaries, we'd, we'd give them 20. Okay, if if they had it, you know, a little later on, let's say instead of 10, it was 11, then we would have to give them more. We'd have to give them instead of 20, it'd be um, because normally if it was two hours later, it would be 40. So it's probably like 33 or 34 militaries. I actually had an Excel spreadsheet I made up my first week on the job called the uh, the decayer. And what it did was what you put in your endosynthesis. You put in your doses and they would tell you how much activity you needed and what the volume was when you would determine your volume. So, and keep in mind that the, this is all done middle of the night. So you can't think, you just have to do. So you have as much automated stuff as you can so you don't mess it up. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of planning. Yes, I had um, actually, so, so two stories. So one story, we, we had a problem with the synthesis unit and, and actually, we had another control box on the top of the hot cell. So there, there were two hot cells. So the top of it was like eight feet in the air, not nine feet in the air. And we had a control box on top of it. And I, and I had to go on the control box. And it was probably three in the morning when it failed. So I'm on a ladder, you know, one foot on the ladder, one, one foot on the control uh, on the hot cell. And I'm working on this control box. And I'm thinking, it's 3.30 in the morning. And I'm 10 feet in the air with one foot on a ladder and one foot on a control box, one foot on a hot cell, trying to figure out how to get this thing to work. It was just, it was crazy, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, like, like six months ago, I would be sleeping right now, but instead I'm trying to get this thing to work. And, and then another side thing too, kind of to tease what we had, when I first started, it was a small company and we had five employees, including the CEO. And the CEO was a pharmacist. So he he got the loans for the facility and, and he was our pharmacist. And he had the he had the facility was made new. It was made made from the ground up. 
and they had a set of outlets. And I needed them to plug an extension cord in, in the outlet. And in fact, I, I was on top of the, the hot stove again. So I'm eight, eight feet in the air working on this stuff. In fact, it could have been the I bet it was the same thing. So, so I'm up there. I'm telling him, hey, plug this extension cord in the outlet so I can use it. And he tries to plug it in. And someone, when they had installed it, the, the electrician had squeezed the ground. Okay, so he couldn't get the ground in, you know, the, the ground prong. They had messed up the, the outlet or, or, or had, had installed an outlet that, that the ground plug had been squished so you couldn't get it in. And I told him, I'm like, well, just get a screwdriver and shove it in there to open it up, you know, so, so we could use it. And he wouldn't do it. I'm like, just grab a screwdriver, put it in the ground and open it. And he wouldn't do it. So I had to get off the ladder. Go grab a screwdriver, shove it in the outlet so the ground would, would was open enough for me to put the back in. Then I climbed up my ladder again. It was crazy. I, I have a question on, I was reading up on, because this was using radiation as a, I knew they use radiation in cancer treatments and stuff, mm -hmm. but I didn't know the full extent of it. My knowledge of that extends on like what I see on TV on like the old TV show, was it House? Yep, House and ER had a lot of stuff too. Oh, I forgot about ER. My parents <laughs> watched the crap out of ER. Absolutely. So why fluorine? Okay. Radioactive fluorine. Is it so it has a short half-life? Mm -hmm. Is that why? Because it's long enough, but not super long? That is that is a major part of it. So first of all, we, we want to use PET, okay, positron emitting. And the reason why is positron emitting, you know, you've got the whole gambit of, of the you know, beta emitters. You don't want to use the alpha emitters for, well, we're doing it for diagnostic, okay? When I mean diagnostic, I mean testing. They have, you have di diagnostic and, and then you have treatment. We're, we're only doing it for diagnostic. And, and because you use positron emitting, what will happen is it'll give off a positron. And when that positron escapes the, the nucleus, it finds a nearest electron. And when it finds an electron, they, they annihilate each other. It's a little, you know, little reaction, a, a little nuclear reaction. And when it annihilates it, those, those two e electrons, e you know, electron and positron, annihilate each other and turn directly from particles to energy. And they turn into 511 keV. 511 keV is the weight uh, of an electron. So it turns into two 511 keV photons. And those photons are 180 degrees from each other because you know, they're, they're going off in vectors 180 degrees from each other. And when they do that, they hit a detector ring. And when they do, the detector ring says, okay, I see a photon here. I see a photon a, a millionth of a second later on this side. So we know it's, it's somewhere in the body up here. And we know... You know, because because of the orientation, we know what what direction it's in, and because of the timing, the time of flight, we know where in the body it is. So, so that's the cool thing about positron is we get those two photons that are one eighty from each other. So it's really good to to determine where exactly it is, and we get a resolution. We used to get a resolution. I don't know if they fixed it up now since then, but it used to be three millimeters plus or minus two or three millimeters. So it's a good, good resolution. So that's the reason why, why we like to use positron for diagnostic. You can get a good determination of where it is and you can, you can get a relatively reasonable radiation dose that goes away pretty quick. 
Now, why we use fluorine is, is because of the time, like you said, it's 110.98. So it's not too long, but it's not too short. It's kind of in the middle. You have O15 is another thing. And they do O15 for lung studies. What they'll do is they'll make oxygen 15 and they'll see how it passes from the lung to the blood. But the problem with O15 is it has like a 12-minute half-life or a 15-minute half-life. So you're literally making it and you're hooking the patient up to the cyclotron and sending it straight to the patient because you don't have enough time to, to do too much QC. So the flooring is nice. It's, it's, it's short, but it's not, it's not too short. It's not too long. So, and then the cool thing about flooring, you, know, you, you got to think of the chemistry too. Flooring, when we can get it to react, it likes to stay, you know, it, it, it can, it likes the single bond. So if we have a, if we have some sort of organic compound with carbons, the carbon fluorine bond is very stable. It's not going to fall apart in the body or something like that. So when you have the fluorine carbon bond, you're doing good. The problem is getting that fluorine carbon bond to happen where you want to. And you have to play some, some chemistry games to do that, but you can do that, you know, in some cases with, with relative ease, with other cases, it, it becomes a little trickier. Okay, yeah. So is that, that, that kind of makes sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like what it reacts into ends up being pretty safe then too for like the leftover material. Yes, it, it's stable. Yeah. When, you, when you make it, it's going to stay. And then like I said before, you get that two-hour half-life so you're not collecting urine, you know, to, to, to make sure that they don't get it into the into the, uh, the 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 sewer system or anything like that. Yeah, you know, we be, because it's got <laughs> such such a short short half life. You don't have to worry about that. Radioactive alligators and stuff. Yes, exactly, exactly. Although we we did have a patient. It w- wasn't us. It was someone else. I, I think I don't think it was us. But they had a patient that um, was scanned in Manhattan, and they got it was it was like two thousand two or two thousand three. So it was post nine eleven. And, and she got scanned in Manhattan and then came back to Jersey and got caught on the way back because she had the isotope in her system. So they had to do some explaining to the uh, to the TSA. Well, I guess it's not TSA, whoever the monitors are for the Lincoln Tunnel, because she got they, they caught her coming back out being radioactive. She just ate a little bit of spicy sugar. Yes, exactly. It was, it was, it was a, little, a little bit of spicy sugar. I mean, that's yeah. What was the glucose called? It's um... uh, fluorodeoxyglucose. So the fluoro is the yeah. tracer. Deoxy is a type of glucose, and then it's a, a glucose molecule. So it's a single. Yeah. I, I think I, you know, the carbohydrate chemists are gonna are screaming at the at the podcast right now. But I think it's a single ring. I'm like 85 percent sure. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think I'm, it is. I'm, yeah, there's a whole Wikipedia page dedicated okay. to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm I, I'm not cheating. I'm, I'm just using my head. But yeah, so, <laughs> um, but yeah, um, and and I can tell you, there's some interesting stories I had with the uh, with flu beta or floor beta bin. That's the uh, that's the Alzheimer's product from Bear. Do you want me to talk about that a little bit? Or, or do, do you guys it. have more questions? No, we you can take this wherever you want to go, Matt. Okay, yeah. cool. So uh, for, for I think I'm done with questions on that stuff, but it's always one of those like, yeah. I always will come up with something like later down the road. And that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, actually, I, I do have a question. Okay, so, so I, I don't even know if this is answerable. I'm fascinated by antiparticles. So mm-hmm. a positron is an anti-electron. My question is, how is it that we know that F-18 
spits out a positron? Well, well, the first thing is, you know, because you're making two 511 keV photons. So the, you know, if you have two 511 keV photons, there's, there's not a lot of other stuff that, that's an annihilation that'll give up two photons, 511, 180 degrees from each other. So, 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 so we basically work backwards. We say this is what we saw. The only thing that can produce it is this situation. Yeah, I mean, I mean from an empirical standpoint, or I, I think it's empirical that it would refer to a, you know, a, st- a coming back for, from results standpoint. I, I mm. you know, that would, that'd be the first thing that, that I would say. Now, now the other thing is, is you can look at ratios of photons to neutrons. And when you do those, those ratios, there are different kinds of decay depending on, on the ratios. So um, I'm trying to think of, of what the ratio is if there's there's too many too many pro yeah and what it is is when you have uh, an equal number of protons and neutrons that's too many protons in a lot of cases so you want to get get rid of a proton so you do a you do a positron and you convert it to a neutron and, and then you go from there so 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 it's it, it's from the theoretical end it's the proton to neutron ratio from the experimental end, it's making two two five eleven keV photons. So, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's something else that, that can do that, but to make it two of them, 180 degrees from each other, that's got it. You know, I mean, it, it's it's got to be tough tough to do outside of you know like a like an annihilation reaction or something like that. Hmm. So interesting. Yeah. So 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 I did that for seven years or so, where it was getting up in the, in the middle of the night making the donuts, you know, for seven years. And it was cool, but it was crazy. And, you know, living on the dark side, uh, on the night side, it's not great. I had little kids at the time, so they'd take their nap with daddy. You know, I'd, I'd come home from work, I'd stay up for a couple hours, and, and then we'd take a nap, and then, and then I'd get up, and then I'd go to sleep again. But then I, I switched over to R&D. And with the R&D, I worked during the day because the cyclotrons weren't being used during the day. They would be used all night. So what what would happen is we'd have people who would or companies who would want to use our cyclotrons to make to make their tracers. Okay, and I, I made a bunch of them. I made um like like FMISO and I made the Avid amyloid plaque de- detection. I made one. In fact, I think it was FMISO that was fun because what it did is when a Sometimes to evade chemotherapy drugs, the cancer will go hypoxic. What it'll do is it'll stop absorbing oxygen. It'll stop combusting. It'll stop stop eating and go into like a suspended animation. And then six months later, three months later, two months later, it would come out. And, and then it's cancer again. And during that downtime, when it sees chemotherapy drug and goes into suspended animation, they call that hypoxia, meaning it goes into a low, low oxygen state. Well, they, they had a drug that would detect that and would tell you if cancer had gone hypoxic. It would stick to the cancer in your body and tell you that this cancer is hypoxic. So I made that drug for a while, which was kind of fun. And then the big drug that I worked on for six of my years was flu beta bin. And, and when I was working on it, it was pre-approval. So it was before the, it was going through the studies, through the approval process. It was made by Bayer the baby aspirin people over in Germany. It was actually sharing, and sharing got bought by Bayer, so they became Bayer. And it was making it for sharing. And 
I was the American chemistry lead. So when the drug was being made in America by Cardinal Health, I was the person who taught this site how to make it. And I was there to run the synthesis and make sure that things went well. And it was fun, except every Friday at three o'clock Berlin time, I had a conference call. So, um, you know, three o'clock Berlin time, if you're on the West Coast, is like, what, five in the morning or something like that, or four in the morning, or it's, it's crazy. So, so you know, for, for years, for five years, I, I had the, the conference call with Bear. And then, um, and, and the product we made was flubatabin. And basically what it does is when you have Alzheimer's disease, there's two main physical manifestations, tangles and plaques. The tangles are tau tangles, so tau protein tangles, and then the plaques are beta amyloid plaques. Well, back when they first started getting big on Alzheimer's, what they would do is, is, is when you pass away from Alzheimer's, that they'd take a brain tissue sample on a slide, and then they'd add a dye that sticks to beta amyloid plaques. And then they'd shine a black light on it, and the dye would glow. It'd glow an orange color or a yellow color. And then you, you could see if they had beta amyloid plaques, meaning that they had Alzheimer's. Well, what they did is they took that dye and they added F18 to it so that it would, it would do the same thing. It would stick to beta amyloid plaques, but it would do it in the body instead of on a slide. So, so we made that for a while. And going through drug trials, one of the trials you have to do is the comparison to a gold standard. So basically, you have to compare it to what the gold standard is currently. Now, the problem is the gold standard is the slide. You know, you, you have to have a slide, a brain slide, which means the patient has to not be living for you to do this. So Reiner, my, my German contact, is telling me, okay, for this next drug study, we have to inject the patient with our product, and then they must expire in three weeks. <laughs> And hearing this in a German accent was a little, a little, a little concerning. Um, yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy. Um, and, and we had to have, I think we had to have 15 patients do this. So, um, so it's one of those things where you inject the patient and then, and they weren't taking any risks. For the patients that, that got injected, they were expiring in like two or three days. It wasn't, it wasn't a week or two weeks or three weeks. It was crazy, you know, thinking, but but we're making a, the world a better place by doing this, you know. I mean, but you you feel bad. Now, Bear did pay for all funeral expenses, so at least they had that, you know, at least they were trying to make it better for that, but it is just crazy. Hmm. That I, That's just crazy, just that's how the, how just drug trials happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I had never. But yeah, no, it makes sense from a like a, you have to A B test it somehow. Yep. And I was imagining like you would like, I was hoping you wouldn't say this, but like open brain surgery yeah. on them and like and then like shave a little off the top to, <laughs> to, put, <laughs> to put under your microscope. I'm so glad you didn't say that. <laughs> well, I mean, do you know? Keep in mind, um, I, I don't know if I I told you this, but I had a stroke 12 years ago. It was, it was because I was traveling and doing a bunch of stuff. And it was a hemorrhagic stroke. So it was, it was, it was a pretty bad one. And there's a section of brain on my left side, I guess it would be your guys' right, but, but over here near the motor cortex, 
that's approximately three centimeters in diameter. That is dead tissue. It, it just it, it died. It died during the stroke, but it, but I was still able to to come back from it. So so you you can survive with with less tissue. <laughs> yeah, I had a a friend who they had to go through some brain surgery, yeah. and the way they described it is. Uh, they took a melon baller and scooped out the <laughs> section of his brain that that was causing him problems yeah. and just yeah and and he he had seizures yeah he suffered from them before that and they just scooped out the part that was causing problems yeah and it goes away and it goes away it's crazy it's it's crazy how how the brain works and and all this stuff um but yeah so the drug tile you know it, it went it went to completion i mean it it made it through it's an improved drug now i don't i don't remember what it's called much like with all these companies, when, when Bear got it through approval, then they sold it to another company to, to take it to market or whatever. So they, you know, it, it, it's, it's all this back and forth and selling and gaining and things like that. So, yeah, that's the story. That story with, with flu beta bin. It was, it was fun. Or floor, floor beta bin. Flu, flu deoxyglucose floor beta bin. They, they kind of mix it up. What what else do we have on that that wouldn't it be cool synthesis machine that that's actually what started about twenty minutes ago this whole sidetrack by yeah. the way yeah yeah <laughs> yeah on the wouldn't it be cool synthesis machine you know, you know they had that dual zone heating and cooling and they had a had, had an IR temperature sensor but well what else they had they had six different radiation detectors so you could tell how much radiation made it into the vessel, how much made it out of the vessel, how much made it through this purification column, through this purification. It was really cool. You could get all, all this information and figure out what, what's going on. Um, yeah, it was, it was fun. You know, the, uh, the old wouldn't it be cool machine. The only problem was we were the only people to get it to work. So they had to, they had to move on to, an, to another machine. Well, it's like the McDonald's it's like the McDonald's ice cream machine. I think so. <laughs> you were the only McDonald's that got that radiation machine to work. Yes. Well, you know, I, I knew we were in trouble when, um, you know, I I was working on it and I had heard that, that they were having problems in the field with it. And then I started getting calls from, from different suppliers asking me for advice on how it works. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm just like, I'm not getting paid for this guy. So, you know, it was, it was kind of crazy. So, yeah. Yeah. I, that, I'm actually a little bit curious that this might be a can of worms question, but uh, just I have no frame of reference for what this is like. But but working with the FDA and regulatory agencies in relation to radioactive uh, things. What kind of headaches or uh, what, what things are involved with that? Yeah. Well, and that's. It's a little tricky because, like, the FDA doesn't care about radiation. You know, you know the FDA is all drug quality, injectable, patency, you know, how, how well does it work, how safe is it to make, things like that. That's, that's all, that's all that, that the FDA worries about. And what we mean how safe it is, how safe it is from a chemical biological standpoint. You know, does it have junk in it? You know, is it, is it manufactured in a in a reproducible process, stuff like that. When we talk about radiation, then we get into the, um, the, the Atomic Energy Commission, the AEC, and what'll happen with that is, is you have, or new, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, sorry, it's a Nuclear Regulatory Commission, covers nuclear stuff, you know, co covers emitters and things like that. 
And what will happen is a lot of states, I don't know what it's up to now, but back in the early, early 2000s, I think it was 24 states or 25 states are called agreement states. And what they have is they have an agreement with the NRC where they would cover the nuclear regulatory stuff. So, so the NRC doesn't have someone in the field in every state. Instead, the states would take care of it. They don't have an agent there. Yes, yes, an agent or an office or anything like that. I mean, the, you know, if something went really haywire backwards, that they could send guys out. But on a normal case, the, the agreement states would take care of it. So when we switched from a small group to Cardinal Health, when we were a small manufacturer, we, we were a pharmacy. We, we actually drew up the doses and sent them on the road and, and they got to the places. So you actually handled all the logistics too yes. then? Yes. Well, okay. what, what we did, the fun part is we used Cardinal Health as drivers. So so they would send drivers to us and then we would load up the, the dose and, and, and then the driver would, would take it where it needed to go. So we didn't have to pay the drivers. We didn't have to have a fleet of cars. We didn't have any of that. But we did have all the pharmacy requirements. So we had to have a pharmacist on staff. They had to drop the dose, all that sort of thing. When Cardinal bought us, they, they said, hey, we, we, we've got a pharmacy in town already. We don't want you guys to be a pharmacy anymore. We, we want you to be a drug manufacturer. So to do that, what we had to do is instead of us sending out individual doses, they wanted us to send out the bulk vials. Well, the problem is we weren't logistically suitable for, for the bulk files because we had like we only had one arm in our hot box to move stuff around, whereas we in a normal hot cell you have two arms, you know, those two arms where you where you can move it around and the arm moves around inside the box. We only had one arm because we only, we had a automatic dose drawing unit that would draw the dose up and then we could take out, spit it out and put it in the pig. But they want us to send out bulk doses instead of unit doses. So because of that, we started getting exposures. And actually, one year when we were bought by Cardinal, in six months, the whole staff was over on either the right hand or their left hand because of the way the flow wasn't quite set. So with that, we got a visit from the uh, the Office of Radiological Safety at, at the state of Minnesota that they got to show up and and talk to us. And because I was the first one to go over, I was the last person they interviewed. And the interview was like the weirdest interview I, I ever had, because all they did is they said, okay, say yes or no to our questions. And then they, they would tell me, okay, so this happened? Yes. This happened? Yes. This happened? Yes. This happened? Yes. I mean, all I did, I did what was say yes, because they figured out from all the other people what, what was going on and, and they just, just needed me to agree with it. So they're so just collaborating stories at that point. Exactly. It, it, I was afraid, you know, going in there. I'm like, I don't know what, what's going to go on because these guys are pretty important people. And I really didn't have to do anything except say yes, because because they knew exactly what what happened. They, you know, I didn't have to think about it or anything like that. So you didn't happen to grow like a third arm. <laughs> No, no, we, we didn't have anything like that. One fun thing with it. Okay, so when you go home for the day, before you go home for the day, you have to sweep the lab with, with a meter. So you take a meter and a probe, a pancake probe and a meter, and you and you go through the whole lab to make sure that, that there's no radiation out, out in the lab. You, you didn't get a spill or something like that here or there or whatever. So, and, and normally... 
we we would take we had a woman who was kind of like our um she she started as like the cleaning person she would clean the bathrooms and and clean the desks and stuff like that and then she would sweep the lab to make sure that there was that well what I mean sweep not not literally sweep but rather you use a pancake probe to to look for radiation and she would sweep the lab at the end of the day and her name was Pam and we used to uh one thing I did for Pam that, that was kind of funny, I, I had a, li- a little a- extra activity and I had it stored in a pig. And I'll, I'll tell you what, where pig comes from in a little bit. But I had it stored in a pig. And what I did, uh, every time Pam went over a specific area of the counter, I would lift the dose out. So the meter would start chirping and <laughs> then I'd put it back in and then, then she'd move over and it start chirping and, and she'd go and clean it. And then she'd do it again. I, I, it'd be clean there, and then, and then like, like like three inches over, I'd start it again and stop it again. <laughs> and I, I had this this moving this, this this moving radioactivity stain that kept moving around. So yeah, so so so, so that was fun. You know, kind kind of a little a little game in the lab. I'm not in the nuclear industry anymore, so so people people don't know to worry about me doing it anymore. But um, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so and and actually Pam, no wonder they waited to interview you last <laughs> yeah, there was a reason for that absolutely and and pam pam is actually now now the site manager for minneapolis cardinal so she's done very well it's been fantastic now one other thing too you know i i mentioned this a couple of times the item you store radioactivity in is called a pig okay they call it a pig it's a it's normally like the cheap ones are lead pigs. So, so basically they're made of lead because lead is good at blocking radiation. It's got a lid on it. And then you have a area in the middle where you can put your bulk dose or whatever else. And then, and then we did go, we went from lead to tungsten because tungsten actually does better than lead. You, you can use less weight and it blocks better than lead and it's not toxic and and when it's machined, it stays machined. Lead, lead doesn't like to stay machined. You know, it kind of likes to blob together. And, and trying to make a hole in lead is, is terrible, you know, with a drill press or anything like that because it gums everything up. But the pigs, why they have the name pig is from the Manhattan Project. What happened, the, the Manhattan Project, to keep things secret, they used agricultural terms for items associated with, with the Manhattan Project. So, like... Pigs were items used to store radioactive materials. You had pigs. And, and I, I believe they had like cows were things used to get to like elude off radioactive materials. They have a, they have a, um, a radioactive tracer called technetium. I think it's te- technetium 99M. And for that, you flush saline over a, mo- a molly 99 substrate and the technetium will come off and, and then you, you can inject that in the person or whatever. And it's called the cow because you're milking the cow to get your, your, your radioactive material from the substrate. So there's a lot of farm-based things associated with the Manhattan Project because you didn't want to give them names that, that made sense. I, I think it's that way with, with theoretical physics, too. When you talk about quarks and stuff, they just, they just came up with up and down and charm and strange and all the names for all the theoretical particles. 
I, I love that we're still using the, those names. Yep, 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 absolutely. What's funny is in oil and gas, they have pigs oh, do as they? well, but they're used to clean out like pipelines. Oh, and but they're actually, I don't know if they were called pigs because of other reasons, but I was told it's an acronym. It's oh. like pipeline inspection gauge. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I do like thinking about the idea that they actually like maybe use like a pig body back in the day. <laughs> Cause that would be totally oil and gas to do it that way. I actually have a student here, here at UAT that his SIP project is a pipe inspection unit for water pipes, for water and sewer and things like that. Um, what they're doing is the student is actually, I don't know if he, yeah, he's not in here. They're, they're creating a camera, you know, a device with a camera and with wheels so it could travel in, in the sewers looking for holes and for issues. And I think they're going to use artificial intelligence to locate when they see something that they're going to have an embedded system. I don't know if it'll be a Jetson Nano or something like that, but they'll have an embedded system that'll monitor the picture data and look for cracks or... Cracks and rust uh, corrosion yeah, is yeah. what you mostly look yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I, I did a quick Google... So it's, yeah, I was correct. So originally early pigs were uh, fortunately not real pigs, <laughs> but they were made of like straw and oh. like barbed wire, okay. just whatever. So it would make a squealing noise going through the pipeline. <laughs> I could see it. And then they just made it an acronym afterwards. Absolutely. Oh, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> and the reason why this is fresh in my brain, I, I was a petroleum engineer for first couple of years in, in college, but um, I actually went to the, I know we're, Way off topic now. The Petroleum Museum in Midland, Texas, okay. I went to. And they had, uh, like, the history of, like, pipelining, that kind of stuff. And, like, the original pipelines were made out of redwood. Isn't that weird? For for oil and gas? For oil, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that would, I mean, I guess it would be. Think of, like, a really long barrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, I mean, barrel. I mean, if you think about it, you know. I, I guess I could, you know, probably the oil starts to embed, like gets a couple layers in, and then it, it like passivates it so it doesn't go any deeper. I could see that. Yeah. Especially what we're probably talking like late 1800s, right? Like like 1890s, 1880s. Yeah, 1880s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can see. And I mean, and you got to have something relatively long and relatively straight. You know, and and in the 1890s, I'm actually surprised it's not just clay. Yeah, yeah, I guess I, I can. You know, yeah. The, the only thing about clay is, is you have to what well, well, you have to worry more about crack cracking and temperature changes with clay. I I think. Yeah, I guess if you're just pumping oil through a big tree, it kind of seals <laughs> itself, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. absolutely. Oh, that, that that's cool. Yeah, I would never thought of that. Yeah, but before that, it was whale. Whale blubber was the big thing before uh, petroleum in the ground. I guess they had like lights and stuff that were based on whale oil up in the Northeast for for years in the 1800s. But I, I think that's really interesting that there's there's two terms for pigs yes. that are not pigs. <laughs> yes. But they come from completely different. Yeah. One's for national security and the other one was because it made the noise of a pig. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I bet you there's actually a lot more of those. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what? Yeah, whatever the name is, where you've got a word that has more than one meaning or whatever. Absolutely. No, no, that's cool. That's cool. But yeah, 
is, is there anything else, you know, I mean, about the, or, or about, about UAT too, I can talk about, about UAT if you have anything with, with here. I mean, our, our big projects for, for this semester, the big one, we had, we had the visor. What was the other? Oh, we had, oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, we didn't talk about the visor on the podcast. So this is all about like Matt's previous yeah. life, I guess. Uh, but you currently are a professor at University of Arizona of Technology, advancing technology, advanced technology. So, advanced. so close, yeah, oh, but the, but that's okay. Yeah, we're yeah, so close. In fact, we're we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. So, so we've been around a while. We actually started as as a CAD school back in the 80s. We we were a CAD school, and then we offered our first bachelor's degree. I think it was actually in VR or game design. Back in the late 80s, like 88, 89, we started switching over to to less CAD, more college stuff. And then and then here, here we are. We, we do a, a lot of we have a lot of guys and gals do do game design and things like that. But but we're starting to, to build our our robotics bench strength. We're the third or fourth largest major here at UAT. So we're, we're getting more. We have about a thousand students. About 50-50 online on ground, and we have a dorm, which which is fun. Since so we have a dorm, we we don't have any regular college athletics except we do have a fencing team, and we have a, a really big esports team. So we have a big esports team, we have a fencing team, and then we do have a red blue network security team as well that, that competes. I love for for the athletics in your department. Yeah. Those are the two options: video games or fighting with swords. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, well, you missed it also. Even is they have red blue uh, network software security teams yeah. too, which is honestly its own competition. You can also, I would say, it's like esports as well. Yeah, coming back from DefCon and seeing, yeah, like at DefCon, there's a really big red and blue team. Bonanza. And they go at it. So Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, that's the thing here, you know, Noah, uh, we don't lock any doors here because kids are always trying to lock pick. You know, if any doors are locked, someone's gonna try to lock pick it to open it up. So so we don't lock anything. Instead we have cameras everywhere. But yeah, yeah, we uh every semester we have a SIP, a student innovation project. In order for students to graduate from UAT, they have to have an innovative project. And for robotics this semester, we had the the automated motorcycle visor it would go up and go down. And then we also had a guy who was he was an online student who spent a couple of decades on subs, and he designed a rack, like a thing that fits in the rack that'll hold your iPad and keep it cool. So so it's got like fans on it and stuff like that, and you can change your orientation. And it's made to fit in a submarine rack. I guess they call them like coffins or something. I mean, they have a really morbid. Oh, the sleeping rack. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's the sleeping rack. Yeah. And I think they call them coffins or coffin cases or something like that. It's uh, it's kind of crazy. But yeah, he designed an iPad holder to fit in the coffin case in the, uh, in the rack. So he had that. Um, I don't remember what, what else happened this year. Last semester... We had a student who, um, he, he worked at America Express. When he was going to school here, he worked at America Express. And when he'd drive home, he had to work nights for America Express. When he'd drive home, the sun was always in his eyes. So what he did is he made an automated controller for his 
window visor, his, his visor. So it automatically lowered depending on the day and time of the year, it would automatically lower to cover the sun. So he didn't have to control it. You know, he, he would just get in his car, start it up, and the visor would lower to block the sun from his eyes, which, which was kind of cool. <laughs> Solving all the world's problems. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, we had another student who did a, a drone. Um, what he did is he is he's real big into in the concerts. And I guess it was we just came out of COVID. So it was kind of like concert deprived. So he wanted to do something with concerts. So he came up with a drone that had a three-dimensional box. So you could watch the concert from the drone, but the drone couldn't leave the box. So you could control it, but only within a certain box. So you could watch the concert from the drone and move it around, but you couldn't move it into someone else's zone or into the ground or into people or, or anything like that. So, Oh, man. that Oh, I don't know if they're still doing this, but I remember this is right when COVID was starting. So like 2020. Mm-hmm. WWE sold virtual tickets. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, and so, and they just had a camera in your seats oh. that you would log into. <laughs> so you could see the wrestling match in your seat. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. I remember them doing that. I was like, that's actually a really good idea for like concerts and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Where like you could sell like basically like virtual front row seats. Right. Yeah, yeah. And all you need is, you know, something, you know, what what is it, like a Raspberry Pi W or something like that for the processor. And then and then you need a Raspberry Pi cam and then and then you need a good Wi-Fi setup. But besides that, you know, you're talking a couple bucks per seat, you know, probably less less than twenty bucks a seat. It'd be reasonable. You could do that. Yeah, I just remember like reading about that and I'm like, the fact that WWE was pushing the innovation of <laughs> of live performances in a digital space basically yes was uh fascinating yes well you know that's that's but the drone idea is like being able to move yeah around is kind of interesting was it vr well it wasn't vr it was just a camera camera and sound but but you could change your angle. You had a virtual box that, that your drone had to stay within. That you could fly around in. So you could move around and, you know, and angle the drone to look at the bassist or whatever, the drummer or the or the lead singer. Or if, if I'm imagining if another drone got in your way, you could move to the other side so you could get past the drone in front look of you. Look over the drone's shoulder. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you could do something like that. I'm thinking like... I'm like scope creeping this person's project for them <laughs> is it. So it's VR, right? Yeah. And so you can do head tracking because when you at a concert, you're like jumping around and like head banging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the drone could follow, like the camera is following your eye movement. Basically yeah, yeah. that would be, yeah, that would either work great or be like really sickening to like this person in the VR helmets. <laughs> Well, you, you could you could slow it down or whatever. You could you could throttle it, you know, through software or whatever. Yeah. So it, it might it might collect it fast, but then you don't have it immediately do yeah, it. Yeah, or, exactly. yeah. You, you do it. Yeah. You do it before you broadcast. You could throttle it down, much like the editing <laughs> that they're going to do on this podcast before it gets sent yeah. out. <laughs> so, oh man! <laughs> but yeah, so we had that. Um, I'm trying. Oh, one thing we had that that was cool. I I kind of scope creeped her project. So what she wanted to do 
was she wanted to 3D print a little light that would sit on a book. So like when the kid was reading the book in the night, it would be like a little dragon or a little shape that would hold on to the spine of the book and, and lean, lean over the book and shine a light on it. Okay. So, so she wanted this character with this light. And I'm like, you know, you, you got to add something to it. Cause that's, you know, I guess it's kind of innovative, but not really. So what I told her to do is, and, and, and she wound up doing this. We took a, an Empire Stick C. Have uh, you guys ever heard of that? The, the Empire Stick C? It, it's an ESP32, okay? But it's got a little display on it. It's got a tiny, like 120 milliamp hour battery. It's got a um, an IMU in it, so it could do acceleration XYZ and rotation and whatever. And it's got, you know, it's, it, I forgot what else it has, but it's got a little speaker on it. It's got a, it's got a little, little microphone in it. It's got an IR emitter. So you can, you can use it to turn off TV sets or whatever. But what they, um, what I did is I told her, okay, you want to make this your backpack for your dragon, the Senpai Stick C. It's a little square case. It, it's like a little, a little case with, with, with the materials inside. I said, make it your backpack, and then when the when the dragon is oriented in the correct direction, that the kid's reading, have it record the time, so it can record how long the kid reads for. And when it orients back, when you rotate it to set it on its bottom or set it on its side or whatever, then it stops recording the time. So this way, you can track how long your your kid reads for with this. See if they're doing their homework. Yes, exactly. They're doing their homework, whatever. And it's like a $19 device or $18 device. Now, now when you order it, you have to order it from China. So it's it's 18 bucks, but it's like six weeks too <laughs> when you order it because you got to wait for it to come over. But but it, it's a really fun uh, M5 Stick C Plus. Check it out. It's a fun, fun little They got a whole bunch of stuff with it, but the, but the M5 Stick C Plus is 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 fun and it's it's cheap and you can do a lot with it and it's all in one one cute cute little package matt i'm uh we're running we're oh yeah yeah we got yeah we're running out of time matt um yeah i'm sorry so i'm just gonna say like this is what happened 200 episodes ago is <laughs> i had to, i had to be like matt we got yeah stop. yeah no that's no, cool it's cool <laughs> The thing is, I want to have you back on sooner than like four years. Okay. Yeah, but before episode six hundred. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, before episode six hundred, you need to come back on. Yeah. Because I would, def- I want to bring up the what your students are doing again. Maybe we have like I can have a student on too. Yeah, yeah. That's actually the thing is, um, maybe we can try. This is just spitballing. Maybe we do like several students yeah. and they like have like a 10 minute, yeah. 15 minute segment, maybe like a presentation. Yeah, we can do that. Ooh, that would be fun. We can do that. Yeah. And actually they, they have to do a presentation for their sit fair. We have a sit fair at every semester and they have to do like a five minute pr- presentation. So, but it would be good for them to do the actual presentation again, instead of a recording. We can do that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what, what'll happen for, for the students who are still around, we can ha- have them uh, on the podcast and, and for the students who aren't around, uh, I can bring their videos so, so we can have some videos and talk about it. Oh man. All right. So uh, Matt, where can people find, or like they want to ask you a question, where can people talk to you? You know, I mean, well, LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn. So they, they could do that. Um, I'm on, you know, I've, I've got a, if they go to UAT, 
you know, I, I, I have an email UAT, so it's like it's a, it's a send me an email. I get, you know, I mean, that, you know, I shouldn't get too many crackpots from you guys, right? <laughs> I mean, should be fine. I, I just don't want to all of a sudden, you know, get an influx of how radiation is bad and, and I'm killing dolphins or something like that. Or, or heart. You're just going to get, you're just going to get weird questions from a guy named Parker and a guy named Steven. Probably. <laughs> hey, I'm cool with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because the other thing too, to, to make the drug, we, we have to worry about dead cell walls, cold endotoxin. What will happen is if you're injected with endotoxin, they're all injectables. When you're injected with endotoxin, You'll spike a fever if you if the drug has an endotoxin in it. Your your body will do a histamine response. It won't be happy. You'll spike a fever. Uh, yeah, I guess I should talk about this before. So so your body will spike a fever and you'll be uncomfortable for a day or two. Well, back in the seventies, sixties, and seventies and eighties, to test the endotoxin, what they did is they injected rabbits. And they'd wait for the rabbits to spike a fever. And the deal with the rabbits, I guess they have a higher metabolism, so they spike the fever quicker than a human would. So you inject a rabbit, and then you you take their temperature, wait wait for them to spike a fever. Well, the deal is when you take a, a rabbit's temperature, you can't put it in their mouth. You know, you've got to you've got to do it rectally. And the rabbit doesn't like rectal temperature, as, as most people, most, most, most animals and people. I would say most <laughs> animals probably yeah. are not too happy with that. Most animals and people are not real, real happy with, with, with rectal temperatures. And I guess the rabbits scream like people when they, like a rabbit can scream and it sounds like a person. I don't know if this is true, but, but our pharmacist, Todd, to, to, told me this because he had to inject rabbits and do the temperatures for, for endotoxin. Well, then in the 90s, they figured out that horseshoe crab blood actually clots when it sees an endotoxin. So you can take the blood of a horseshoe crab and add a drug to it, and if it forms clots, if it, if it forms chunks, then it means that there's endotoxin. I, I was half expecting you to tell me that horseshoe crab blood screamed. Yeah. Oh no, 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 it didn't scream, but it does, it does the endotoxin. Now the deal is you, you, you extract the blood. Okay. And then, and then they extract the specific, it's called LAL and it's a specific protein used to clot with, with endotoxin and the horseshoe crabs don't die. Like, like you, you can extract it. I think they do like 50% of their blood or 30% of their blood or whatever. And they get like a 20% mortality rate or a, a 30% mortality rate. So it's not great, but it's not bad. But it's been a real, a lot of people are complaining about this, about the horseshoe crabs, because they're, you know, you know we're, we're killing horseshoe crabs for endotoxin. But then again, we were killing rabbits before this. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess we weren't killing them for the endotoxin, but, you know, it, so it's a big thing now. If you do horseshoe crabs and endotoxin, there's going to be like a million Reddit posts on how bad it is and how we're we're killing the horseshoe crabs with the with the with the LAL testing. So, but yeah, I, I guess I imagine you farm raise them though at this point. Yeah, well, no, I think they wild catch and they extract blood. It's like blue. The blood's weird too because it's not red; it's blue. They extract the blood and then they send them back out. But um. Yeah, I don't know why they don't farm them, but they don't. They wild catch them. 
Can you just like eat the ones that die? Are, are they edible? I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, right, this is going to be. Yeah, it's I, I think it's copper. I, I think their blood is copper based. They have a couple of different types of blood. They have a vanadium base, but I, but I don't think that's I, I think it's copper based. Their blood is copper based. Does that sound about right? Or is is the Internet agreeing with me or not? Uh, they have a you can't eat its meat because it contains tetrodotoxin. Okay. But you can eat parts of them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I have that in my search history. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you eat horseshoe crabs. But yeah, so, so, so there's a lot of, lot of you know, it's, it's on a lot of people on the, uh, on the inter- internet are not real happy with drug manufacturers because of the horseshoe crab. And the deal with us is it's so tricky because we have to do the endotoxin before we can inject it in patients. You know, it's one of those things where we have to do it before it goes in patients. If it's a normal drug, you can wait a couple of hours for a rabbit to start spiking a fever. With the LAL test, it's 20 minutes. So we can start the LAL test, and by the time it's going out the door, we know if there's an endotoxin or not. And part of the thing with the FDA is the FDA does not like us sending our drug out without doing sterility. But the problem with sterility is it takes two weeks. I mean, it takes a week to do the preliminary and then another week to finish it off. And and the FDA really doesn't like a drug going out without sterility testing. So we do still do sterility testing, but it's like a week or two weeks after the patient's been injected. What, what we do is we tell the FDA, hey, we, we've got an endotoxin, so we know that there's no dead cells in there. So if there's no dead cells, we're hoping there, there's no live cells in there either. So it's kind of like a, like a bridge test. But we have to do the, the LAL version because it's 20 minutes instead of the hour, two hours, or six hours, or I, I don't know when a when a fever spikes on the rabbit, but but but, but however long it takes, it, it's interesting. We, we have a lot. I, I like I said, I have a lot of a lot of fun stories. <laughs> um. So yeah, <laughs> Steven, Steven's just smiling. He's like, I, I don't know what to say, man. I'm talking about rabbits and blood and horseshoe crabs, and I feel like we need to have you on to just do a stories special <laughs> of just like, <laughs> just like randomness. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, thank you again, Matt. Absolutely. And that was the MacFab engineering podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig later, everyone. Take it easy. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or know a way how to cook a horseshoe crab, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macrofab.com. 